it is, it seems crazy to me at least, that it is the Christmas season. And um, so because of that, we're going to go ahead and jump into a Christmas series. And the series is Finding Jesus at Christmas. And uh, I hope you appreciate all of my creative and graphical genius on the screen as I took somebody else's work and tweaked it to make it say what I wanted it to say. And uh, But we want to start this series, and today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, and I'll go ahead and tell you, the slide will come up for it in just a, just a moment after the text is where it's, it's placed, but we're going to look at finding grace at Christmas. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, it's a lengthy passage, it says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God now indeed Elizabeth your relative has also conceived a son in her old age and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren for with God nothing will be impossible then Mary said behold the maidservant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word angel departed from her so as I said gonna preach for a little bit about finding grace at Christmas finding grace at Christmas God bless you you may be seated there's a song that says it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas and uh, it is and has been for quite some time beginning to look a lot like Christmas uh, I, I don't know if it's because, and I know there's a lot of changes this year because of COVID. Black Friday was no longer the big deal that it was because they staggered it all out. And to my amazement, Walmart was closed on Thanksgiving. We were in Branson, and typically we go to Walmart for various things. Sometimes they're Black Friday things, but I, I was shocked as I understood it. Walmart was only ever closed on Christmas Day, but because of COVID, it was, it was closed on Thanksgiving as they tried to mitigate the crowds coming in. And, and all of the different retailers, they staggered out their, their cyber uh, Monday-type deals and their Black Friday deals. They did it for days and sometimes weeks in advance. And In our household, uh, we typically take advantage of Black Friday. My wife does all of this planning and gets it all just right on what we need and what we don't need that we might buy anyway, even if we don't need it. 
and uh, things that we can buy and take back at some other time. And, and my daughter, she has this deal where she likes to do Christmas songs as early as possible. In fact, September 1st is not too early for her, but I, I made her wait until November. I was like, I can't handle Christmas songs for four months because by the time Christmas gets here, I'll be tired of them and I won't want to ever hear them again. And so I made her wait to November 1st, but November 1st came and she was on Spotify and she had the Christmas music going and we, we celebrate Christmas and we have this season that we call Christmas. Unfortunately, most of what we do around Christmas has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with it's all about retail and various things of that nature. And so it's really not about Jesus, but we need to make sure that we make Christmas all about Jesus. And so with that in mind, I want to, of course, kind of set the backstory for the text that I read, or even maybe it's really not just the text I read, it's the backstory for all of the Christmas story. You see, the Bible tells us that at the fall of man, and, and when, when God is issuing his curses and he's issuing his punishment, he promises that there will be a Savior. He promises that in one, in one day there will be the seed of the woman who will bruise or crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent, Satan, will be destroyed. He promised that at the fall. And so from that point on, there are prophecies, and there's a looking forward to and a, a yearning for the Messiah to come. This Messiah that would take all of that and, and he, would take, he would take and eliminate the evil from the world. They were looking for a Messiah. There, there are a myriad of prophecies in the Old Testament that, about Jesus and about the coming of the Messiah, that he would be of the lineage of David, he would be of the tribe of Judah, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And the Bible lists out prophecy after prophecy about what all of this means. But in the meantime... When there is no Messiah, there is no Savior, there is no one to take the sin of the world, God gave the law, and so the Jews are looking to the law as their salvation. They're looking to the law and to keep the law and to offer sacrifices, and in anticipation and hope that that would take away their sin, at least for a period of time. Well, as, as Israel goes through various things, they go through slavery, they, they're enslaved in Egypt, and they come back, and now uh, they, they, re, they form as a nation. They, they then look for kings, and they want kings to rule over them. They, can't have a, they, they want to have a king like everybody else. The Messiah is not here, so in, in lieu of the Messiah being here, let's at least have a king. We don't just want a judge. We don't just want a prophet. We want a king, and so... God says, that's fine, if that's what you want, it's not going to be what you think it's going to be, it's going to be bad in some ways. He said, but I will give you a king, and so he gives them the king, and Saul is the first king, and then he's followed by David, and then he's followed by Solomon, and then Rehoboam, and, and when Rehoboam comes on the scene, he's, he's a dictator, as it were, and so Israel is divided, the nation, the kingdom of God is divided Ten tribes go one way, and they become Israel. And the other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they form the nation of Judah. In the nation of Judah, they have a, they have a back and forth of good kings and evil kings, where some kings will follow God and some kings won't. In Israel, all the kings were evil. All of the kings served idols. All of the kings 
went astray and didn't follow God. So in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and they wipe out the nation of Israel. They take some of them and they push them into other parts of the Assyrian kingdom and then other nations they bring into the land of Israel to, to uh, pollute the bloodline. And so there is no more nationalistic Israel at that time. Well, Judah, as they go back and forth between their good and their bad, God finally has enough, and in 586, uh, the Babylonians take and, and destroy the temple in Jerusalem, and now Judah is also in captivity. They come out of captivity. God's, God lets them come out after a generation. Before they go in, he, tell, he tells Jeremiah how long they're going to be in captivity before they come out. And when, when God's time frame is right, he lets them come back. And they ultimately rebuild Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. But it's not long till the Greeks take over the world. And the Greeks conquer Israel, or what is the nation or the, the geographical area of, of Israel. The Greeks take over that and now they're enslaved. And into that slavery, Antiochus Epiphanes, he comes in and he offers a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. And from that we get a rebellion that leads to Hanukkah. And I may have recently told you about Hanukkah, but if I haven't, you can ask me afterwards on, on the origin of all of that and how it plays into what you see today. But as soon as the Greeks are off the scene, the Romans come in. And now the Romans are ruling the world and God's people are now enslaved in essence to Rome. They're subservient to Rome. They're doing what it is that the Romans want them to do. And so God's people have this yearning to be free. In fact, all people have a yearning to be free, not just God's people. But in this case, the God's people, the Hebrews, they're continuing to cry out for the Messiah to come. They're saying, we need a Messiah. We want the Messiah. We need to be delivered from all of this. So when Jesus, in the time of Jesus comes, everywhere you look, there's a Messiah popping up. Is this the one? Every time there's a strong political leader that rises up and is speaking about rebellion against Rome, they're going, maybe this is the Messiah who's going to deliver us and overthrow Rome. Maybe he's the one. So constantly they're looking for the Messiah and, and constantly the rulers, the governor over Judea, they're putting to death people that would be the Messiah, that, that might be able to stir up the people and overthrow the government. And unfortunately at that particular time, they're, they're not, there are a group of people that they're, they're really following God, but it's not like everybody's following God. Everybody wants a Messiah, because everybody wants to be delivered from Rome. But not everybody wants a Messiah because they're really following God. They just want to get out of Roman oppression. In fact, those who would and should be the most religious, they fell into two primary camps. You had, you had the Pharisees who had basically taken the law of God and they had added a whole lot of things to it and that every, everything you did was wrong and you couldn't do anything right. They added 100-fold, or at least 10-fold, I believe it is, to the law of God. God gives some 640 commands in the Old Testament. The Pharisees had 6,400 laws. You couldn't do just about anything. So you have that group of people, but then at the same time, those who would be the high priest, 
those who should be the most spiritual, those should, who should be the most in touch with God, they had politicized the office of the high priest, and you could purchase the high priesthood if you had enough money or if you knew the right people. No longer were they following God's plan. No longer was there a succession and a right way to become the high priest. No, they were, they were, public, they were politicizing it and they were purchasing it. And so while there were a group of people such as the Essenes who were living holy and living right and they were following the prophecy in Isaiah that said, prepare a, a highway in the desert, a straight path for our God. They were trying to live holy, thinking that if they lived holy enough, the Messiah would come on the scene. But the majority of people, they were just going along with the Greco-Roman culture following all of that. Wanting a Messiah, but for the wrong reason. And it's into that background and into that culture that God sends Gabriel. That God sends Gabriel to Nazareth to talk to a girl named Mary. The Bible says that in Galatians 4, and when the fullness of time was come. God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law that God had a time frame in mind in which he was going to send the promised Messiah. He's waiting until the proper time. And when the fullness of time comes, God sends Gabriel. Six months before, he had already miraculously called, caused Elizabeth to, to be with child. She was barren. She couldn't have children. She's much older than Mary, her and Zechariah. They couldn't have kids. And I I won't get into that part of the story too much, but God had already showed up on the scene six months before, and now the angel comes to Mary. And when he does, he says this, Greetings, favored one. She's shocked, she's amazed, she's troubled, really, the Bible says, at this greeting. What does that mean? What does it mean that I am favored one, that an angel of God would call me? highly favored one. The reality is that that Mary, most likely in her mid-teens, it's a different culture, a different time. They get married, at least the females got married at a much earlier age than we do today. The men, not always, typically they would be older and they would wait until they were 30 or above until they had started their, their full occupation and There's a lot of Jewish background I won't get into, but Mary is most likely in her mid-teens, not from a notable family. There's nothing about Mary's lineage or family that says, man, she was from the wealthiest family in Nazareth, that her family was super important. She was from Nazareth, a city that was unimportant non-influential in fact later when jesus is doing his ministry they would say this can any good thing come from nazareth pick the skankiest city you know or town you know of and say man nothing good can come from there that's the kind of thing that they were looking at nothing good can come out of nazareth and here's this teenage girl with an angel that says highly favored one Now, the reason I point this out and the title of this message is Finding Grace at Christmas is because 
The word for favored here, it has the same root word as the word for grace in the Greek. The word for grace is charis. You spell it, you would transliterate it into English as C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. And the word here means one who has favor or one who has found grace in essence. That Mary, who doesn't deserve anything, she's a teenage girl, she hasn't done anything important in life, she's had no accomplishments, she doesn't have a job, she's from Nazareth, and the Bible says, highly favored one. That you have found favor. You don't deserve it, you didn't do anything, you just got favor. You just get grace from God. There's nothing that you can do to earn any of that. And when she questions that, she's, she's kind of surprised about all of that. And the angel sees that she's troubled and said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. Once again, and this is even closer to that word grace, and, and it could probably be translated, you have found grace. You have found Grace, you, 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 have, you have found something that you could not earn, but God has just given it to you. That God had a plan for the ages, and he had a plan in a time when the Messiah would come, and his plan was for you to be the one to do it. Not because you were all that great, but you just found favor. And when she sees that, it's demonstrative of her humility That she doesn't believe that she's all that. Well, of course I've found favor. Look at me. Her response isn't anything like that, but she's like, questions. Why would you call me highly favored one? Why would you say anything good? She knows who she is, and she knows where she comes from. But out of the blue, she finds favor. She finds grace. The Bible tells us of another man Somewhat, I would say, a a similar situation where sin is abounding, that the sinfulness of of mankind is is, uh, super abundant. Everybody is doing their own thing. And now of Noah, the Bible says that he was more righteous than those of his generation. I don't know that that means he was the most righteous ever, that maybe he, he may not even been near as righteous as you are or I am. It doesn't mean he was great. It just means he was a little better than everybody else, at least. Everybody else is serving pagan gods, and they're going away from God. And God is, he gets upset about all of this. And the Bible says he repents that he made man. And he's going to destroy them, but the Bible says that Noah found grace. Noah found grace, and because of that grace that he found, God provided a means of salvation where Noah and his family could be saved because God gave them grace. I think it would be appropriate to, first of all, understand this, the definition of grace. You've probably heard it. It's, it's, in fact, it's the most popular definition when people are defining grace. And it's a simple phrase, and maybe it's a little too simplistic, but it's unmerited favor. Favor that you do not deserve. That's what grace is. So when anybody gets grace, the bottom line is this. They are getting something good that they do not deserve. 
look at your neighbor and say, you don't deserve grace. In fact, if you deserve grace, guess what? You don't get grace. Because grace is something that you can't earn, you can't deserve. You, you just get it. It's just God just decides to give you grace. He just decides to let you have that good thing that you really don't deserve. I'm going to draw four applications from this, and I'm going to wrap it up fairly quickly. But the first is this, that God has extended grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus himself he comes on the scene, and he, and he goes to the cross, and he, he takes the penalty for your sin and mine, we now have grace through Jesus Christ. We, are, we have salvation because of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's only by God's grace that we get salvation. It's only by God's grace that we get anything good from God. The best thing that we can ever get is His salvation. God extends grace through the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, that God's grace is greatest when we are at our weakest. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. That Paul is writing this of himself when he, he says, I had this thorn in the flesh and three times I asked God to deliver me. And God didn't deliver me, but every time he said, my grace is sufficient. In other words, I'm going to give you what you need to endure the problem that you have. I'm not going to take your problem, but I'm going to give you everything you need. That when you are at your weakest and you can't overcome the problem, guess what? I'm going to give you strength. And I'm going to give you help, and I'm going to, I'm going to edify you, and I'm going to enable you to make it through your problem instead of just taking it away. And that help and that strength is the grace of God. That God's grace is strongest, our greatest, when we are at our weakest. Thirdly, God's grace is most abundant when sin is at its worst. In the days of Noah, sin is running rampant. Everybody is sinning. Everybody has walked away from God. And in the middle of that, Noah found grace. That God's grace showed up when everybody was evil. When sin was abounding. When sin was at its worst. Romans 5.20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That when sin is most prevalent, God's grace is most present. That sin, whenever people are sinning and they are, they are doing things that are against God, God's grace shows up in the middle of all of that to enable us to get out of sin. And I don't know if you recognize it, but we live in a culture and a time where sin is abounding. Where the, the Judeo-Christian values that we held to for centuries is now being washed away and eradicated as quickly as possible. And all you have to do is look at the headlines or look at the magazines and the checkout line, and you will see that sin is abounding. 
And what we have is a promise that wherever sin abounds, the grace of God does much more abound. That the grace of God will show up when people are at their worst, when people are doing the things that are against God. That's when His grace shows up. Anybody thankful for the grace of God? Anybody thankful that Jesus Christ saved you when you were a sinner? That when you couldn't get to Him, He came to you. When you couldn't save yourself, He saved you. God's grace is most abundant when sin is at its worth. And lastly, God's grace is most available when we recognize our inadequacies. James 4, 6 says this, But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Mary, she recognizes she's just a teenager. She recognizes she's not from a big city. She's not from an influential area. She's not from Johnson County. She's from Nazareth. She's humble. Because of her humility, God chooses her to be the one who finds grace, to be the highly favored one. When we acknowledge our need of God, His grace shows up the most. He resists the proud. He resists the people that says, I can do it. I don't need this. I don't need your help. I got this one under control. But he gives more grace to the humble. He gives grace to the ones who say, I can't do it on my own. I I can't make it to heaven on my own. I can't even make it tomorrow on my own. I can't make it today on my own. That when we say that and we live that way, his grace is more abundant. I don't know about you, but I would rather have more grace and walk in humility than say, I don't need God. And he said, well, let me let you do it by yourself. Because what we can do and what we can accomplish with God is much greater than anything I can do on my own or anything you can do on your own. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? God is a God of grace. He is a God who does more than we can ever imagine. Christmas is a time of grace that Mary, highly favored one, one who has found grace, but not only did she find grace, but you and I have found grace when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ. As I was thinking through this last no- this last night and we're, they're going to sing a different song because we didn't have time to practice this or it was late last night and I had a friend of mine from St. Louis who sings this song. I'm going to read you the words here. So I texted him last night and I said, hey, can you send me the words? And he sent me a picture. It's a song called More Than a Friend. But the first verse starts this way. He giveth more grace. When the trials are many. He giveth more strength for the need. In a world full of questions, he is the answer. He's been more than a friend to me. There's a lot of other things, but but what resonated in this, the, 
the words that came to my mind was, He giveth more grace when the trials are many. That when problems are abounding and when we are struggling the most, God's grace is most present. That God's help is with us when things are really bad. When you have little trials, you get little grace. You have few problems, you get little grace. When you're really strong, you just don't need that much grace. But when things are really bad, when the trials are many and when your strength is all gone, and when you look to Him, He gives more grace. Would you stand together? thankful we serve a God of grace a God of mercy a God of love whatever kind of positive attribute you want to put on him that's the kind of God that we serve today would you lift your hands right now would you just thank him for his grace thank him for his goodness to you Jesus we love you God we love you we magnify your name we magnify your name magnify your name Jesus God you're so good to us Yes, we do, Jesus.